mini break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, March 14th. We've officially hit the halfway mark at the 2023 Indian Wells event, making now the perfect time to take stock of where things stand in both the men's and women's singles draw. We've got round of 16 play ahead of us over the next two days. Plenty of fun tennis across the schedule for us tennis fans to enjoy. That said, give We've reached the halfway mark now does feel like the perfect time to, again, take stock of where things stand right now in each of the men's and women's singles draws. And a fun exercise we decided to go with today is to reseed the top five players in each field. Of course, prior to the start of the tournament, I named my top five contenders in the men's and women's singles draws for all of you listeners. How many of those contenders are still alive at this point in the event and how Has my top five list changed at all over the course of these first few rounds of play? That's the question I want to answer for all of you listeners today. Of course, I also want to hear from some of the biggest minds in tennis about their thoughts on everything that's unfolded at Indian Wells. And if we're bringing in a big brain here on our mini break podcast feed, you know who I'm going to turn to to help me break down who the top five contenders are in both of these men's and women's singles draws moving forward. So joining me once again on the Mini Break Podcast, as he so frequently does, is a man who you all know best as a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets Podcast, an editorial producer for all things Tennis.com and Tennis Channel, essentially a co-host of this Mini Break Podcast at this point. So much so, I didn't even have to let him into the Zoom. They just let his account straight in in preparation for today's show. It's our dear friend, David Kane, joining us once again. David, welcome back to the podcast. Little morning session for you today. We're recording earlier than usual. As such, I ask, how are you feeling? Is, I just have to ask if that, is that all you have to say to me? Is that all you have to say? <laughs> what did I forget? Okay. Oh, no. Are you, I don't know. You had something you had to say to me. Uh, you had a lot real- to say to me in Paris when I beat you in three sets. So I don't really know what, what the deal is right now. <laughs> I feel like there's more you have to say, but I'll let you say it. Uh, I mean, I was just go with what? Expert on all things Real Housewives across the board. Like, I'm trying to think what I might have forgotten in the intro. That was a very Real Housewives moment from Holger Bruna. Like, I, <laughs> I, I was at the gym. I saw it happen on Twitter. And I thought, oh, man. <laughs> I am so mad I'm not home to write this story. And sure enough, it yeah. is blowing up the website. We can all take the day off because our dear our dear fearless leader, Ed McGrogan, wrote up that that uh, fight between Stan Wawrinka and Holger Runa, and it mm-hmm. is blowing up the site. So uh, thanks to Ed for that. Thanks for Holger for really continuing the drama, both on court and in the Twitter replies. He was up very early or very late at night, uh, continuing to reply to people and delivering one message in the replies and perhaps another message with his likes. And yeah. I, he referred to it as an inside joke. And then the likes maybe told perhaps a different story. All I can say is, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I want more of it. That's great. That's a- I, as far as I'm concerned, the tournament is over. That was the final. I just, there's tennis today? What? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, let the record show. Because we're recording here early, it took me a second to realize what you were saying. And then when you said Paris, I was like, oh, this is his whole Garuna moment. Before we reseed each of the men's and women's fields, let's discuss what was one of the biggest storylines of day number six of this event. Because, yes, we had the, I don't know, was it an eagerly anticipated Runa Wawrinka rematch? It's like, here's the issue. Obviously, you look at the 30,000-foot view. 
it is hilarious now that Stan Wawrinka has become like one of the gatekeepers to tennis's past, right? He's one of the veterans, capital V veterans we have right now on the ATP tour who has gone through the ringer, who has reached the top of the game, obviously a three-time slam champion. You know, his words carry weight in a way. I just feel like he has gravitas now as a veteran moving forward. And so just to rehash the conflict, Runa beat Stan Wawrinka in Paris after the match Wawrinka did not have kind words for Holgaruna at the handshake said you were acting like a child out there you need to mature more as you move forward through your career that set the stage for again I don't know if it was an eagerly anticipated rematch I think we all would have been fine had this match not occurred at this Indian Wells at the same time you know stands up a set in 5-2 Runa works his way back and forces a third set. Now, ultimately, it is Stan who's able to win the match in three. Was somewhat of a cordial handshake at first, but as they begin to walk towards their respective benches, Runa says, you have anything to say to me now? Stan Wawrinka, as I did at the start of that podcast, kind of goes, I don't know what you're talking about there. Afterwards, in the press conference, though, he talked about Runa gaining maybe not the greatest reputation so far in the locker room at this stage of his career. It's about as close as we get to conflict in professional tennis. And dare I say, this is straight-up conflict. Again, two players getting a little chippy at the net. I mean, obviously, you offered a synopsis of your reaction there right at the start. It was juicy. What was your reaction to all of it, DK? Well, first of all, what Stan Wawrinka was alleged to have called Holger Runa in Paris was crybaby, which is a very interesting choice of words, given that that is a pejorative that was once allegedly lobbed at Stan Wawrinka himself when he played Roger Federer uh, at the ATP finals a couple of years prior. So it is funny to think that now Stan Wawrinka is the elder statesman when it really wasn't that long ago when he was the crybaby in the sure. dynamic, allegedly. Um it wasn't something that we were looking forward to necessarily in terms of a rematch because Vavrinka is this sort of ephemeral element right now in tennis. We don't really know where his game is at. We don't know how much longer he's going to be playing. I mean, I think it's sort of a, he, he occupies a strange niche because he is perhaps a sentimental favorite at this stage of his career, but he's not someone who is he's in that sort of team Dominic team purgatory, perhaps, where he's coming back from injury and we don't know how much longer this is going to be happening, if he's going to improve, if he's going to retire, what's going to happen. So I think it is not something, certainly at this stage, certainly not at this stage of the season where we where we're looking forward to this match or eagerly anticipating. But when it did happen, there was some uptick in interest in that particular story that I wrote up uh, during the Paris Masters. So people were certainly thinking about it when the match got underway. And there is something to be said about Stan, you know, making a point to say something to Holger at the net when he lost and then having nothing to say to him at the net in Indian Wells, even if it was just whatever, good match, you know, you behaved better today, perhaps. Maybe he didn't feel that way. I don't know. I mean, it does feel like sour grapes if you feel the need to, you know, scold a person when you lost. And then when you win, it's you have nothing to say. So I, it didn't surprise me that Holger, who I think thinks a little bit similarly to me, would have that kind of remark to say, especially as disappointed as he probably was to have lost to then feel like, you know, this is someone who's kind of given me um, the hard shake because as much as he, you know, has an attitude perhaps sometimes on court, he's probably someone who really looks up to the likes of Vavrinka. And, and even if he does behave in ways that are not always becoming, he still wants their respect. So it didn't really surprise me that he... Um, that he popped off at, at Stan at the end. And it didn't surprise me that he continued to carry the the uh, disagreement perhaps onto Twitter because this is something that 
I think uh, real heads are starting to pay attention to that after Holger Runa wins or loses a match, he takes to Twitter and he starts liking a lot of fan tweets, starts replying directly to fans. An interesting dynamic, given the fact that he does seem in many ways insulated because he's, you know, under the Patrick Moritoglu umbrella. He's very close with his mom, but he's given full reign of his social accounts. And we're seeing that happen for better or for worse, both on Twitter and Instagram. So many things I'd like to follow up on there. First of all, your use of ephemeral to describe where we're at with Stan Wawrinka. Flawless, as always. That's why you're the editorial producer you are. And for what it's worth, you look for Stan Wawrinka, even with this run to the round of 16 at Indian Wells. He's currently sitting at 86 in the live rankings. He's 19 and 20 over his last 52 weeks, 7 and 12 in first round matches. Like, again, you're right. From the tennis aspect of things, I don't know how compelling this match was expected to be. I don't even know. Uh, yes, it went three sets. It was a fun fight. It was not the most physical tennis. It was not the most fluid tennis. It was very disjointed. A lot of ebbs and flows for both guys. Again, Stan was up a set in 5-2 before Runa's able to work his way back and force a third. You know, that's the, the, the tennis analysis. That's all I got for you. Slower court, higher bounces. Obviously, the older guy in Stan Wawrinka is going to have a higher chance for success on a surface like this. As to the Holgeruna side of things, it is fascinating to see Holger engage with tennis followers the way that he does because he is one of the, I don't want to say, well, no, I'll say it, few people who is not even... I, I don't know what the right word I mean. He doesn't hide like the fact that he enjoys getting after it with fans. He enjoys engaging with people after matches. That to him is part of the joy of being a pro tennis player. And he thinks it's incumbent upon him to engage with fans to try and help grow the sport. And I do wish more uh, more players would do that because it creates opportunities like this where you can have some superficial seems like an, a rude word to say, but you can have some off-court storylines. You can have some tension building in matchups. Now, the issue is, you know, you'd love to see Runa Wawrinka play five more times over the course of the next three months. The issue in general with tennis rivalries is, A, a lot of the times the conflict happens after the match, right? It's not like Runa was talking down 6-3-5-2 at that changeover. It's not like that's when he said something to Stan, and then it got chippy, and then they got to keep playing with that tension lingering over it. The only time the tension would continue to linger is if they play again, and the issue with tennis rivalries is it's just you're never guaranteed. to. You'll never know when you're going to see that matchup again next. That's why, like, you're right. This was a really fun conflict. I don't know how serious it is, Unless this thread of people disliking Runa, unless you like start to see disrespect towards Runa from other players moving forward, maybe Stan creates a permission structure. We did see Kyrios take Runa's side in this Stan debate as well. Because Surprise. Was, yeah, exactly. And everyone was wondering, where does Nick Kyrios stand on this? I don't know. Like, I think that's the issue with tennis. A, this better be in break points coverage of Holger Runa in season two. Because this is our first oh conflict we've gotten in a while at a clear-cut break point event. But be like, I don't know. I don't know how much to read into this. I mean, it's an interesting comparison between Nick and Holger because Holger definitely seems to have an air about him on court that rubs players the wrong way. Whereas when you think of Nick Kyrgios, there are instances of him, you know, uh, arguing with umpires, throwing rackets. It always feels like there are concrete things that you could point to typically in a Nick Kyrgios meltdown, quote unquote. Whereas with Holger Runa, he just seems to bother players, whether it's probably, you know, come ons at inopportune times, 
maybe perhaps whining at his box. There are just, he has a demeanor that players don't like. And so it ends up becoming, it ends up coming as a bit of a shock when Casper Rude rolls his eyes at Holger Rune at net or Stan Wawrinka, you know, lectures him at the handshake. It feels like that they're coming to him for a, a cumulative thing versus any individual tennis sin. And so that always ends up taking me a bit by surprise. And 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 speaking of the um the interaction with fans, for those who are perhaps worried about it, I mean, let's not forget Venus and Serena were once both so engaged with fans that they were creating a newsletter. I mean, that this this is not something that I would imagine would last forever. I mean, I it would not surprise me if this time He's next 19. year Holger had his own social. I mean, he does seem to have someone working with him on social or has some kind of social person with him. And I could see a time coming where the decision is made where, okay, you give me the keys. And if you really want to, you know, have a message, you can say it, but maybe you shouldn't be uh, bantering back and forth with the fans. But so I'm not really concerned about that long-term. And even if it does continue, I mean, it's kind of hilarious. I mean, it's just, it creates that sort of 360 degree dynamic that I think we're sort of missing in tennis because like you said, things sort of end at the match and Holker's taking them off court. He's continuing to engage fans and, it's probably only going to get more voluminous, that kind of interaction. You're going to see, because now fans are going to see that Holger's answering them. It's only going to make them want to tweet more in these sorts of uh, situations. That becomes its own uh, tricky situation. But yes, I certainly hope Breakpoint covers this. I mean, even Mm. Casper seemed surprised that his quarterfinal with Runa kind of got breezed past uh, in his Breakpoint episode. He was like, I mean, there was something that happened on court that they kind of didn't really acknowledge. And so that was strange to me. I hope next time they cover more of the tennis stuff, because I think maybe even the producers of Breakpoint thought that the off-court stuff was going to be more compelling. Whereas I think actually for a lot of these players, the on-court stuff is perhaps where it's at. But um, yeah, it's not something that bothers me. The main thing that little, that the main thing that worries me is it kind of the fact that Rune lost this match. It kind of feels like this is a match that he should be winning at this stage of the game. And it kind of speaks to the fact that he hasn't perhaps been performing at this sort of Paris Masters level that we were hoping that he would carry into 2023. He's got the clay court season coming up in a couple of weeks. That should be, you know, a pretty fruitful time of year for him. His first chance to perform well at Madrid, Rome, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a weird one that he wasn't able to figure it out because you would think that, as we said, I mean, if this had been a three and three win for Runa, it wouldn't have been a tremendous surprise because of where Stan is in his career. But good for him that he was able to figure it out. And uh, good for us that we were able to get some of the fireworks of the handshake. Yeah, well said. Again, Runa's a 19-year-old kid. It is, one, it is fascinating you bring up what is it about other players that makes him so frustrating because it's clearly something. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking in my head, is it his proneness to play the drop shot lob combination and people feel that's juniors-esque? It's like, well, hold on. Alcaraz does that same thing. We hear no one complain when Carlos Alcaraz is drop shotting people to death. I mean, I think Holgaruna has an arrogance about him that at 19 years old, he thinks he belongs in the top 10 of the ATP Tour. He thoroughly believes he will be number one in the world someday. I see no fault in that. Like, you need to have that belief. I think we had this issue a little bit prop up during the Curiosity-Sipas debate, where I think there are certain signifiers in the men's game that rub players the wrong way. I mean, I think, you know, Sitsipas is very close to his parents. Sitsipas has a bit of a an air about him that feels like he's above this or he believes that he's, you know, meant to be the next big on thing. The path. And yeah, sure. Holgerun is not that different, very close with his mother and the mother's very involved. And he also sees himself as the next big thing. And so I think maybe he behaves sometimes on court when he gets frustrated. There is that sort of uh, extra 
element sure. layer, layered on top of it that when another player gets frustrated, you don't think, oh, and he thinks he's going to be the next big thing. And then he's so frustrated. Blah, 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 blah. So I think that there are certain elements of perhaps expectations of masculinity that kind of play into this, especially when you compare even Runa to Alcaraz, you know, Alcaraz is a full grown man at, at 19 years old, where I think there's still a lot of boyishness to Runa that then makes his um, histrionics seem that much more infantile. And I think mm-hmm. that, again, I think there is often that um, desire for the, the tour to kind of beat that out of young players because they find it very annoying. And I think the fact that he looks the way he does and acts the way he does and has the circumstances that he does all kind of play a part there. He's different. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. Can I make one final comment and then we can yeah, move on? by all means, for sure. And, and let's be clear, every so often I like to tell jokes. Doesn't he look like a really well-manicured Lego? Hulkaruna? <laughs> yeah, like, it's like the head shape. It's like it's just like the, the spherishness of the head. It's like I've seen that shape on a Lego. I mean, <laughs> that is a take. Yeah. That is a take. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, there to go. That's the take for you there. And by the way, I mean that as a compliment. There's some good-looking Legos out there. But uh, with all of that said, again, that was your most dramatic moment, certainly, of day number six. Let's move on, though, to, again, reseeding the top five field. As we look forward towards this field, we have reached the halfway mark. And yes, that was conflict. But the biggest storyline have been how tight these matches have been across the board, I would say, on both the men's and women's sides. And, you know, for what it's worth, I offered my pre-tournament favorites, all five of my top five on the women's side still alive, which speaks to this era of clarity we seem to finally be reaching on the WTA Tour where we have a more well-defined top seven, top eight. On the men's side, only one of my top five pre-tournament contenders, Hoopy Hercots, has been eliminated. And yet, honestly, three rounds later, I feel less confident about my pre-tournament top five than ever before. I have no idea who's going to end up winning this 2023 Indian Wells men's singles title. So I think that's where we should start our conversation, reseeding the field, David Kane. Let's start with our top five men, and let's just start at the very top of the list. Who right now in the men's draw, in your opinion, is most likely to capture the title? I think if you combine, I think my top two picks are interesting, and I go back and forth between the two of them a little bit because am I going by momentum and history or am I going by magique and fairy tales? But I think based on where we've been in the last 12 months, I think he's playing solidly. I think he's in good shape. And so I think it would be tough to pick against Carlos Alcaraz right now. And so I think he's still my number one pick to win. Perhaps a bit of a boring choice because, you know, in an era right now where we're not always getting all big three or even all two big three guys uh, at a Masters 1000, this feels like an open opportunity for everyone who's left of the draw. And so to pick the number one seems like a bit of a cop out. But with that said, Alcaraz, when he is fit and healthy and confident, he is one of those players who can be head and shoulders against the rest of the field. And so until we see evidence otherwise, it's hard to pick against him. So he's my number one. That's actually, I think, the most interesting player for us to discuss, and so that is a fun place for us to start. I had Alcaraz number five 
on my pre-tournament list. I think you're going to say number seven. (laughs) (laughs) No, item five, just because of the health concerns, right? For him to leave Rio the way that he did, for him to have only played two weeks of tennis here in 2023, it was just a question mark of how healthy would he be at the start of this event? Well, we have the answer. He's healthy. And you look for Alcaraz straight set wins thus far over Kokonakis, over Greek Sport. Talon Greek Sport, by the way, has played exceptional tennis, exceptional tennis to start this 2023 season. His losses are, I think, Djokovic, Rublev, Medvedev, Alcaraz, and I'm forgetting who the fifth one was. But it's like, they're all good losses. Don't worry about it. And he already won a title in India first week of the season. Again, Greek Sport physically provided a challenge to Alcaraz last night and just he's fit like he he has retained the five to ten pounds of muscles he put on last season maybe even added another five here in the off season and you know again he's hitting the forehand so confidently I think there's better depth on the backhand he's been a little streaky as a returner feels like he sprayed a lot against Greek Spore, offered him more free points than you'd expect and yet if he lands that return with the depth with the action on that ball I mean, you're just in trouble. Yesterday was Alcaraz's 100th tour-level victory of his career. You look in terms of tour-level history on the men's side, who are the fastest to 100 total victories on tour. Carlos Alcaraz does it in the second-fewest matches, one fewer than John McEnroe, who did it 131 matches. Alcaraz does it in 132. Took Agassi 135, Nadal 137, Becker 140. You know what I'm going to say, DK? 55 and 12 in his last 52 weeks, one of five players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage, a slam champion before turning age 20. He's just like, it's a reminder that he has yet to be eliminated from the GOAT conversation. That when he is healthy, he's tier one. Like, this is what it looks like. You want to you say the big three. I think you'd argue the big three now, the three unequivocal tier one players, regardless of what surface they're on, if they're healthy are Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz. And he's just shown that again through these first two. I mean, like, his forehand's a joke, DK. It's just a joke. And it's, I think he's appointment viewing. Like, you saw last night, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, both on scene to take in the Carlos Alcaraz experience. And yes, here's some projection and speculation. But the best athletes know the best athletes. And that Dirk... NBA champion, Hall of Famer, Steve Nash, two-time NBA MVP, Hall of Famer, that they're there to watch Alcaraz, that they're both like, hold on, we got to see this kid in action. I think it speaks to the fact that, yeah, when healthy, he automatically has to be at the top of the list. He's number two for me now that as we approach around, you know, he's elevated himself from five to two on my list. And it was a mistake to have him that low. Or I guess it wasn't because I was wondering how healthy he was. But the answer is he's healthy, and I just don't know how you can have him anything lower than tier one contender at any event he plays. Well, I mean, you had to make room for Ben Shelton, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably why he was he was a little low. You had to, had to make ready for the future. I understand that's that. True. You know, tennis moves fast. But I mean, I think, yeah, Alcaraz, I mean, I go back, back to that U.S. Open final against dear sweet Casper Ruud, who played phenomenal tennis and was winning, managing to win points that he had no business winning because Alcaraz was still was able to show off this level of athleticism that is Djokovician, a level of spin that is like Nadal. I mean, he is sort of, in many ways, the best of both of them. And Andy's volleys like, like Federer. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, 
Yeah. It's a very dangerous combination. I mean, we go back to that conversation about Demon Hour that we had last week. I mean, it's, if guys like Alcaraz continue to exist, there will always be that gap between them and the rest of the field. And so absolutely, even though we consider this to be a draw without Nadal and Djokovic, which it actually literally is, but is it is it without the big three guys? Not necessarily because Alcaraz seems to be here. He's fit and he's healthy and he's got a very interesting draw. It's very, it's an interesting um changing of the guard in a sense where last year he was probably in Jack Draper's position and now he's got to play Jack Draper and could play one of Felix or Tommy Paul, which is which is to say that this is an important test for him because as much as he has this potential and we believe that he has long-term abilities. This is sort of a master's for him that if he is at the level of a Nadal and Djokovic, he kind of has to run the table at because this is his opportunity to prove that when they're not there, he is the best guy and certainly looks like it. Now he's got to prove it. Yeah. Number two on my list. Number one on DK's going into this round of 16. You bring up Jack Draper. Quick tangent on him. Draper now 36 and 20 in his last 52 weeks. He's back into the top 50 up to number 43 in the live rankings with his run to the round of 16. Here wins over Rietti, Evans, Murray, excuse me, Rady, Evans, Murray, all in straight sets. You look at the lefty now in his career, 147 and 69, but at the tour level, he's now 46 and 25 overall. Again, doesn't turn 22 till the end of December. So this is his age 21 season. I sent this out as a tweet yesterday. I think what we've seen from Iga, what we've seen from Carlos, even what we've seen from the Cocos of the world, what Holger did in Paris, it's kind of skewed our perceptions of what young success looks like on the ATP tour. But when I look at Jack Draper, who, you know, again, has made quarterfinals now, uh, he made quarterfinals, excuse me, last year in Canada, knocking off Pass Monfils on the way to that quarterfinal. He, you know, is into another round of 16 here at Indian Wells. He's made run runs on grass courts before pro quarterfinals there. And, you know, still waiting for him to make a second week at a slam. But for a 21-year-old, I mean, Jack Draper has done just about everything you would ask a 21-year-old to check off from a benchmark perspective on their way to an eventual Tier 2, Tier 1 style career. Where are you with the lefty? What are your thoughts on his game, his future? Because he's not held in the Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa, Draper tier of players, and yet, like, I mean, even I think Ben Shelton has passed him from a perception amongst fans or a moving forward standpoint and yet the results indicate the statistics indicate this lefty's not going anywhere for a while DK I think he's going to be in the top 25 for the and maybe even top 15 for the majority of his career I mean he's already number one among models who also play tennis (laughs) so I mean is that true Berrettini doesn't count I mean, in terms of live rankings, I would say that Draper is probably trending ahead of him in that perspective. And also, I think Draper is probably modeled more full time than Berrettini, yeah. um, which more power to him. But I think with Draper, I think having the lefty game and maybe not being as naturally explosive off the serve as a Ben Shelton, I think there is a bit of growing into his game that needs to occur. And so... Yeah, I think it it perhaps isn't fair to measure him against players who've had more meteoric rises. But, I mean, realistically, until last fall, I would maybe put Draper ahead of Holger Runa sort of in sure. the progress chart. But, you know, Holger obviously leapfrogged by winning um, winning in Paris and beating Djokovic, which is, you know. Yeah, and making a couple <laughs> other to say finals. not everybody has that. Yeah. yeah. No, but, also, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. Also, it just had the massive September, October overall. For sure. Um, so, I mean, this is definitely a big opportunity for Draper. I mean, Draper is sort of where Alcaraz was against um, Nadal this time last Interesting. year. You know, it, it's sort of that. I mean, when you think of where Alcaraz was, I mean, perhaps Alcaraz was coming into March with a bit more momentum, having done very well on the uh, the Golden Swing. But still, I think, you know, it's hard to for, – for me, I always look at the biggest tournaments in terms of how are you able to perform on those big stages. And so in that way, they're sort of um, equivalent in that respect. So I think with um, with Jack, yeah, he still has to grow into his game. And I still think that um, – I think being a lefty is always going to give him a bit of a natural edge. And so that's going to be something that's going to keep him on everybody's radar. And the fact that he's going to be the next big British hope gets the win over Andy Murray in a sort of passing of the torch – moment and so we'll see how he performs against Alcaraz but he's certainly one that if you're not thinking he's going to make at least one grand slam fourth round in 2023 I think you're you're perhaps not paying attention I very much agree with that assessment yeah it's funny you mentioned that explosion compared to Shelton you're right from the serve perspective Ed Shelton but Draper's not far off he's already a top 25 server on the ATP tour I would also point out from a technique perspective on the ground strokes it's a little bit cleaner for Jack Draper. And I've never seen Jack Draper miss two backhands consecutively. I'm not saying he can't miss two backhands throughout the course of the match, but he is rock solid on that wing, comfortable going after the forehand, very sound as a mover physically, a good volleyer as well. He just plays a very complete game already. And you're right, 21 years old, you feel like as he adds five, 10 pounds of muscle, grows into his body, that the pace will come. I agree. I think Jack Draper is going to make a second week at a slam this year. I think Jack Draper, I'd be more surprised if he doesn't than if he does end the year in the top 25. I think it is all signs pointing up. And yeah, Runa may have had the accelerant in his ranking in that Paris Masters final, but that's an interesting take. Draper versus uh, Holger Runa, whose upside do you like more moving forward? We'll save that discussion for a different time. I threw this out there uh, yet last week. Right now, if Davidovich Fokina played Shapovalov, or who are you? T- or just upside, Davidovich Fokina Shapovalov right now. Who are you picking? Rapid fire. I don't need a full explanation. Oh gosh, I mean, right? Isn't I, it fascinating? I mean, I guess Davidovich Fokina, just based on him being a little bit younger and Shapo not really performing that yeah. at that high of a level in the last, probably since his Wimbledon semi. I mean, like I can't really point to like a big results, but I mean, obviously. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one, but obviously I think from a technical level, I think Chapo has more upside, but then consistency and, you know, yeah, that's a tricky one. That's yeah. a, that's an interesting debate. What about Foki over D- Demon Hour, right? You take Davidovich Fokina just because you've seen it across surfaces? Yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, you know, the, the Masters final, and I just think that we, you know, he's already done the thing that we think that, or you think that <laughs> Demon Hour is capable of doing. <laughs> yeah. Well said. I think they're both interesting, but all right. Tangent aside, Alcaraz at one for you, two for me. I assume your two is Medvedev, and my because that's my one. No, actually, my number oh. two is Tommy Paul. My oh. number two is Tommy Whoa. Paul. Yeah, Make it the is. Case. That's I said. That was my debate between sort of foundation and history and overall talent with sort of magic and fairy tales. And I think with the way that Tommy Paul was able to finish that match against Hubie Hurkacz, I mean, go back to that volley that he was able to land when he was serving for the match and sort of the emphasis that he's been talking about wanting to get to net more and, and feeling like that that's the key to succeed on these slow courts. I mean, that's the difference right there between Medvedev and Paul is that Paul has a plan, which is I'm going to attack the net. And Medvedev is, I 
hope that I win the rally. Like it's, it, there's not as much of an, it's, he's fighting the court and Paul is coming in with a, with a plan. And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, you get that one magical win against Hercats, perhaps you get that another magical win against Felix, and then he's beaten Alcaraz at a Masters before. And, you know, maybe these, these, these wins start to tick up. He's at, at a tournament where he's seen his friend win and do something that probably people would have thought was impossible and in Taylor Fritz. And so, you know, maybe things are just about, I mean, this is a guy who made a Grand Slam semifinal two months ago. I mean, he's been able to win five straight matches uh, at, at a tournament before. So I think that and in best of five. So, I mean, I think maybe, you know, we looked at this draw and felt like it's impossible. How is he going to beat this guy, that guy, that guy just to make the semis? But I don't know. The way he was able to finish that match against Hubie makes me think that perhaps we're going to see, per, you know, one of those lifetime movie moments. Yeah. Now, Tommy's 37 and 17 now overall since the start of June. He has nine and six against top 20 players. He's beaten Rafa, Fritz, Alcaraz, Hercots, Sinner, RBA, PCB, Shapovalov, Chilich, like he's proven he's a top 15 guy. And you saw the athleticism, the fluidity. It's the totality of things Tommy can do. It's always been the totality of things. Tommy the totality can do. of Tommy. Yeah, 100%. It's just the fluidity in the corners, the ability to move forward, the sneaky huge kick serve that he can move in behind or set up the plus one forehand with now on the ad side and his inside in his kick serve wide inside in forehand combination has just become lethal. And he did it relentlessly to Hoopy. Test that on the run forehand for Hoopy Hercots, which just sprayed a little bit too much throughout the home stretch of this match. Here's why Tommy can't be two. And I say this lovingly, DK. Plays Felix next. This is coming off of the Hoopy match. Then would play Alcaraz. Then let's just say everything holds seeds. He plays Fritz in the semis. He plays Medvedev in the final. He wins those five matches in a row. Put him at number two in the world. Like, are you kidding me? That would be a ridiculous five-match stretch where you're playing five top 12 players in the world consecutively. Like, I just don't know if anyone's capable of doing that right now. Even maybe, I mean... I think Djokovic could do it with a day off and in an Indian Wells schedule, but like that is the toughest ask. It is the toughest possible draw potentially for Tommy to have to get to the title. That's why I not only do I not have him too, I don't think he can be the highest American. I'll I'll jump in here with my list. My highest ranked American is fourth on my list. Tell me things haven't broken perfectly, DK for Francis Tiafo. I mean two again, straight set wins for him in his first two matches, Giron Kubler off the court easy. God, is this surface nice for him. Slow, high bouncing, a little more time for his forehand. He can take that ball a little bit higher, which is where he likes it. Or he can go all the way back, let it drop down if he'd like. He has all the time in the world. You know, won't face a seed until the quarterfinals there. He'd face the winner of Rublev and Nori. I think that's a very winnable match of all the potential seeds he could have faced. And then after that, like you mentioned it, Medvedev's fighting the surface. Davidovich Fokina's fighting everything. Christian Green's fighting for relevance. You know, Alexander Zverev's fighting to get back in the mix. It's like the bottom half of the draw has, it's just the easier half now. Or not the easier half, but it's just the more, it's just the easiest pathway. Like I I just think Francis, by virtue of not having to go through Alcaraz, I think he's got to be the favorite now for last American stand. No, for sure. I mean, I think it's easier to pick if you had to pick between what's more likely Tommy Paul winning the title or Francis Tiafo making the final, I think Tiafo is the easier pick there because I looking at that, I mean, things like you said, could not have broken better for him. If he could get 
uh, Tabilo and perhaps Rublev back to back, and then one of Medvedev, Zverev, Davidovich, or Garin. It almost feels like to me he's looking like the favorite to make the final because if the if the number two favorite is Medvedev, who openly hates this surface. And we'll probably have to play at least one more night match to make the final. And that's when conditions are going to be at their slowest. And he won't be playing someone perhaps as limited as Ivashka. You know, it's hard for me to put him up top because he is so openly contemptuous of this tournament. That makes me question his long-term ability to succeed. And he's also perhaps running on fumes at this point with all the matches that he's managed to win in the last couple of weeks. With that said, if you get a Tommy Paul Tiafo final, Tommy's won his last two matches against Francis, including uh, the last two. So, yeah, if 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 the arrangement is, as you said, and he has to play Fritz and Medvedev and Alcaraz and Felix, then yes, that would be astronomical. But I also think, to our earlier point, the way that the men's field is set up, anything short of Alcaraz winning the title for me would require, you know, a, would, would result in a degree of chaos and unexpectedness. And so why not go for the most unexpected storyline in that sense? But again, I think it's it's based off of how he's playing more than even just the storyline of it all. I mean, he he can beat Felix and he can beat Alcaraz. He's beaten him before. So, I mean, at that point, once he's in the semis and perhaps gets Tiafo in the final, I mean, that would, first of all, a, a all-American Tommy Paul Francis Tiafo final at a Masters in California would just be like explosive for America. Yeah. It, it would be the crowning achievement of American men's tennis to this point, And certainly the culmination of a lot of what we've been talking about at this, uh, over the last couple of years. And so it would be a great moment, uh, for everyone involved if that happens. So I think, um, yeah, he's, I, I would say Tiafo and Paul are in my top three for sure, because just based off Tommy, based off of vibes and the way he's been playing and yeah. Tiafo just based off of this draw, because I think if he, if he fumbles the bag on this one, this is one where he'll really be smarting because this is not for lack of opportunity. Yeah, no, very well said. You're right. I test wise, Tommy and numbers wise, he looks the part. And like, it's amazing after years where, look, the Phoenix Challenger, the ATP 175 is going on this week. I'm actually flying there tonight here on Tuesday. Excited to have plenty of Crack Rackets content for all of you from the grounds over the next few days. But how many times in years past would the Phoenix Challenger be the site where, oh, nice, Tommy, Francis, Fritz, they're all playing the Challenger. They all reach the quarterfinals there. It's like, no, three of them are all still live in the Indian Wells round of 16. And, like, again, the goal was always get one to championship weekend. Very much a pathway is still alive. And it's interesting that we haven't mentioned Taylor Fritz just to put the final bow on this, and then we'll go quicker through our list because I want to get to the women's, and I promise I'm going to keep you here for under an hour here today, DK. Um... Will I keep that promise? We'll find out, listeners. Uh, This is suspense. Well, you already know the answer, but it's suspense here for me and DK. I mean, Taylor got pushed by Ben. First of all, that match was everything we thought it'd be. So shout out to us for projecting it with the gravitas it deserved. To see him just dust Baez yesterday, I sold Taylor short. Like, Fucevic is a good matchup next. I would I I think Fritz versus Sinner if that's the quarterfinal or if the uh yeah the quarterfinal has the potential to be maybe the best of all the quarterfinals and there's a lot of good ones potentially on the board. Can Taylor win this event? Like we haven't he's the defending freaking champion and he's the third American we're bringing up. I think it depends on how dominantly he dispatches uh Puchevic because yeah. I'm still a little bit not totally glamored by the fact that he was that close to beating Ben Shelton. I mean, that was a match that Ben should have won, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, that's the fact that Ben didn't win that one. It makes me, you know, we we were talking about how it wouldn't be a bad loss for Ben, regardless of how that goes. But 
based on the scoreboard, it was certainly the worst possible scenario for him that he was really that close and really had Taylor emotionally on the ropes and, you know, really couldn't get an inroad into his serve. And then all of a sudden things start to, to dip for him. And, um, and Taylor really runs away with it in the third, gets Baez, which, you know, on a hard court, you know, certainly a good opportunity for Taylor to dust off yeah, the- Yeah, but uh, an Indian Wells hard court. I'm just saying, like, if there's ever going to be a good ba- a hard court for Baez, it's this one. Yeah, perhaps. But I mean, it's the hard, <laughs> mentally a hard court, you know, for someone like Fritz, you feel like, okay, I got the- But it's, um, as the defending champion, you have to think the pressure is only going to continue to mount for him as he gets closer and closer. How will he fare against? I mean, the good news for Fritz is that he's one and zero against center. He beat him uh, on hard courts a couple of years ago. How well that head-to-head holds up? Obviously, not the the biggest set of data. And you know, if he gets Alcaraz in the semis, things would be different. If he gets Fritz, uh, rather, if he gets Paul in the semis or or Felix, then you know, you give uh, Fritz more of a chance. But then Tommy did just beat him in Mexico. So I mean, I think that's that's sort of what we're talking about for for why I'm so high on Tommy is that he can he's beaten. All most of, guys, of most yeah. if not all of the guys that he will have to beat in all likelihood to make this final. So it's you feel like that there's an opportunity there. But I don't know. I just I feel like every time we bet on Taylor, he underperforms. And every time we maybe sell him short, he does better. So I think maybe we should, we're all better off just ignoring him for the time being <laughs> and seeing how he how he does. Because, I mean, you look at the last couple of big hardcore tournaments, I would have expected him to do better. And he didn't. So, I mean, it's hard to say that this one just especially this one, because he's got the pressure being defending champion. Yeah. I think that's all fair. Um, look, again, so your one is Alcaraz, your two is Tommy, your three is Francis. Correct. Okay, I like that list. My one is Medvedev. Look, someone's just got to beat him. Like, I know I know Fuchovic, uh, excuse me, I know Ivashka came close, um, started hitting the forehand really aggressively, started playing inside the court, doing all the things you need to do to beat Medvedev, and yet he could only sustain it for a set. And just, like, the plane Medvedev is on right now physically – a healthy Alcaraz, I think, can get there. But again, I need to see it to believe it. You mentioned what he wants to do is, you know, again, trying to hit through these courts, how difficult it is for him. He's hoping you're going to miss. He's also hoping he's going to blast a big serve by you. And he still does have that trump card in his back pocket. I'm fascinated to watch his match versus Zverev today. I think that one could be sneaky interesting. He's still just my number one guy because I got to see it. Like, again, I don't have enough confidence in anyone else in the field yet, even with Alcaraz beating Greek Spoor and Kokonakis the way he did. He does that again against Draper. Now he's elevated to the number one spot on my list. But for now, Medvedev holds at one. Sinner's three for me just because of the vibes. Like, again, I just think he's due. I, I, I do. And... I know he didn't play great against Manorino yesterday. That match was way closer than it should have been. And Adrian Manorino finding success at Indian Wells out of nowhere here this year was one of the fun, goofy storylines of the first week. But, like, from a draw perspective, he's got Wawrinka next. I think it's a very winnable match, whether it's Fritz or Fucevic. And God willing, I mean, Sinner Alcaraz is maybe my favorite rivalry right now. That doesn't involve Djokovic or Nadal on the ATP Tour. I don't know. Sinner's vibe picks for me. I mentioned two names there, Medvedev, Sinner, that you haven't had the chance to comment on. Would you like to? Um, no, I mean, we've talked about, Med- Would you yeah, talk about Medvedev. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, it's true. I mean, he certainly, he recovered, you know, yeah, in, in the exactly. third and one six one. He beat Nakashima. And, you know, this Zverev matchup is interesting because Zverev has beaten him before. And okay. at, even at times when I thought Medvedev sh- was going to win and then Zverev comes back and, and, and manages to win that one, it's, you know, a lot of history in that kind of head-to-head. And it feels like if Zverev is going to reassert himself among the game's best, this is a match that he'll certainly have to win to expedite that um, trajectory. 
And it would also be kind of ironic if Medvedev's uh, streak ends at the hands of Davidovich Fokina, who, yeah. against whom it arguably started because he was yeah. down a set to, to Foki uh, in Rotterdam a couple weeks ago. And then all of a sudden he kicked into gear. Um, and Foki's certainly going to be one who's going to get a lot of balls back. And um, yeah, so that's uh, that's an interesting one as well. But I, I mean, again, you just feel like something's got to give with Medvedev. He's got to be tired. He's on a a surface that he doesn't really care for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to pick him to be the number one pick when there are a lot of things seemingly coming against him at this point. So I think that's that's why I'm I'm low on him, but he can certainly, I mean, he's he's proven me wrong week over week over week the last couple of weeks. So um, there's certainly reason to believe that he can uh, he can uh, outperform expectation. Yeah. Sinner, you're fine with it at three? Yeah. No, I mean, Sinner is yeah. definitely the one, it, maybe even more of a hitch to me than the rest when it comes yeah, to like sure. the Tommy Paul fairy tale is that like wouldn't it be just like tennis for him to beat who be Felix Carlos and then have you know a, a flat day against Yannick Sinner and then yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like whoops and it certainly wouldn't be a bad loss because we know what Yannick is capable of and he you know he's made a Masters 1000 final before on hard courts so there's that but again yeah. Sinner is sort of similar to Fritz to me that's just someone who is with a lot of talent and someone who we keep betting on to do well and there's always something that's kind of holding him back so this is as big an opportunity as any for Sinner to really um put himself out there he'll get if he gets gets past Pavrinka, he'll likely play Fritz and he'll only have to play one of this really this uh this section of death of Alcaraz Draper Paul Felix that which is a, a big benefit to him that he doesn't have to beat two of them yeah, and look, those are the three names to me that would also make the most sense. Medvedev, Alcaraz, Sinner, any of them Indian Wells champion, I think that computes pretty fine for sure. with tennis fans moving forward. Tiafo is the highest chance for an American, so he's my number four. I have Rublev at five just because he's playing solid. Like, Andre's playing well. He gave Nori the business at the U.S. Open. The Tiafo match has always been a tough one for Rublev, but, like, why not? Why not Andre Rublev? So he's at my number five spot, but I think there's a big cutoff line probably after three for me, then another cutoff after four for Tiafo. Put any American in that place you'd want for him. And then again, then you get to five with Rublev. Any other final thoughts on the men's DK? Are you ready to move on to the women? Yeah, no, I would just say that probably Sinner's my number five over Rublev okay. just because I think that we're – We've seen a lot and arguably too much from Rublev. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that makes me think that maybe Sinner has a better shot. But again, number five, we're, we're really we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel, feels like, like you said. Yeah, well said. Well, with all that in mind, then let's move on to reseeding the women's field. And look, I think this is going to be a shorter conversation. All five of my pre-tournament top five favorites are still alive. I had Iga, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, Pagula, Rabakina. They're all still in the event as we approach the round of 16. I just think you're lying to yourself if you have anything other than Iga 1, Sabalenka 2, Krejcikova 3. Like, I just think that has to be the top three right now, DK. And we'll start with Iga. You know, last night pushed a little bit, no doubt about it, by Bianca Andreescu, who came out swinging. Still, Iga, 3-6 and six victory for her. Did you read the stat? 21 years old. She's now second in all-time win percentage at 1,000-level events. She trails just Serena. She passed Sharapova. She's won, like, over 85% of her 1,000-level events. She's 21 freaking years old, DK. It's like we haven't even hit her prime, and she's already, again, in position for all these records, not eliminated from the GOAT conversation. Well, I mean, that's also because she hasn't played as many matches as Serena Maria, I would assume. True. Not like a lot. <laughs> but it's not like she – but she's played more than 25 
And it's like once that sample size gets over 25 and she's already in the conversation, she's not in the prime of her career yet. Like you're right, but you're telling me you don't think she can sustain this rate moving forward? Like, Sure, but I mean like just to say that, I mean like but Maria's played like what? Played 20 years worth of Masters versus versus yeah. Ika. I mean that – I mean listen. It's like I, 12. I, we're in a – I still feel like we're in a bit of a – I mean look, Ika's played phenomenally well the last couple of weeks and really reasserted herself. I still – wonder you know what's going to give sure. because it felt like at the at the beginning of the year something was un not unstable but maybe perhaps uncertain and it's sort of an interesting uh battle between Iga and Sabalenka for number one because who's it's like a it's a question of who do you think is more likely to have an off day against either Emma or Krejcikova and I think statistically you would say Krejcikova is the more logical upset pick because Krejcikova did just beat Sabalenka in uh, Dubai and is probably yours as well as mine in the top three picks to win this tournament. At the same time, I mean, we are on a slow, hard court and Emma Raducanu is kind of rounding back into form. Not saying she's my top five by any means to win this tournament, but, you know, it feels like a, it does feel like one of those moments where like the British press will never let us forget it if and when Emma beats Iga and it becomes like the biggest deal. Then let's have the Raducanu conversation quickly. This will be our the Radu conversation. Well, this is the equivalent of the Draper tangent because for sure. We should, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just saying, like again, conversationally wise. But isn't that interesting? Because I think if you asked play, people who had more upside, Emma or Jack, they probably say I mean, Jack. People probably say Jack, and 100%. yet Emma's the one with the Grand Slam. And I'd say you Jack. Know, would is is it more likely that Jack is going to win a Slam? You know, over the course of his group. Probably, but who knows? I mean, it just feels like at this point, question. Emma already has the slam in her pocket. And so is very, at this point, far and away more likely to have the better career, in my opinion, just based off of that alone. Radakanu so far, two and three over Kavinic. Uh, obviously, six and two over Lynette. Then last night or yesterday, six, one, two, six, six, four over Haddad Maya. It's the first time, it's her highest ranked win since the U.S. Open back in 2021. It's, you know, uh, looking for Emma Raducanu. How many times has she won three matches in a single event over the past year? It's only happened twice. Happened at Seoul to end last season. Now it happens here again at Indian Wells. By making the round of 16, Raducanu back up to number 72 in the live rankings. Let's be clear. I mean, she's just like, again, the physicality we saw at the U.S. Open, that's returned here at Indian Wells. The depth and the drive on the backhand, I don't think that ever went away. She's hitting it well, but the forehand has looked explosive again here over these past three uh, victories. I mean, I don't know, though, that this changes the trajectory of my thinking for Emma Raducanu at, like, moving forward. It's just like, okay, she's playing well again, like, finally. And we know when she plays well, she can be a top 20, top 15, obviously, Grand Slam winning player. That doesn't mean that the rest of the field hasn't also caught up with her, right? Iga was an Iga at that 2021 U.S. Open. Uh, Goff has continued to progress as Raducanu kind of plateaued for the moment, like— my thinking of Raducanu's ceiling being lower compared to her contemporaries has nothing to do with a change in thought in her. I think it has more to do with changes in thoughts of the rest of the field. Like, I just think the rest of the players have gotten better. Mm, I don't even know if they've gotten better. I just think that the 2021 U.S. Open was very much a lightning in a bottle moment. It was where, something. I mean, somewhere a player. Who, I think, and... and We've talked about this sort of like the homogenization of women's tennis, sort of just like this level of 
power and athleticism that's just required to keep up. And I think Emma has possesses a level that can, you know, allow her to compete and be a top 30, top 40 player fairly consistently. And with a bit of confidence and momentum and, oh my God, I'm playing this teenager who's like a qualifier and I can't lose to her. And I think a lot of that played on the minds of certainly a Maria Sakari and other, other opponents that she had to play uh, at that tournament. You know, am I going to be the one that lose to a qualifier in, in a grand slam semifinal? And, you know, players are, you know, she got a pretty big comeuppance in the, in the months that followed that U.S. Open. People saw that she really wasn't as powerful off the ground as maybe people thought she was. I mean, the way that Rabakina beat her to start the season in 2022 was a pretty big um, mm-hmm. wake-up call for those who thought that M was just going to run away with things or be, a, you know, a consistent top 10 force. You know, but maybe for some, we've seen confidence players, you know, get on roles before. And she seems to be someone who's a really big, who can do a lot with a bit of confidence. And she's coming into the fourth round, having won three straight wins. Surely, yes, the first time she's won three matches in a row anywhere since the U.S. Open. Uh, uh, so she did it so last year, but that was it. Forgive me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, but that isn't that telling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's the first, sure. First, first place that matters since the 2021 U.S. Open. So I think, you know, it's, how is Iga doing? Is she feeling a bit spent as well? A little bit like a Medvedev has had played a lot of matches the last couple of weeks. Is she feeling a bit um, physically spent? She just had a pretty, what I had to imagine is she probably really felt like she had to get up to play Bianca yeah. Andreescu. You know, does she have a bit of a letdown? Plus Emma feeling confident and things sort of just all, you know, that's how she won the US Open. Things fell into place. And so for someone for whom things fall into place, I kind of give her uh, not a total sh- zero percent shot of winning this uh winning this match and also you go back to i think for me the bar goes back to when she had to play serena in cincinnati last year and i remember i was like this is so obviously a match that serena wins but the fact that emma did manage to win it as poorly as serena played that match you there is there is a floor and i think for a while we were starting to worry that there was no floor for emma and i think you know this is she was able to do that, and it makes me think that she, you know, in, in a high-pressure match against a player that everyone was expecting to beat her, you know, she's certainly not going to be favored to win it. So that gives her a bit of an advantage as well. So I think it's, I don't know, it just feels like, yeah. it's like Emma's moment again. Buckle up. <laughs> sure. Glass half empty. She fell outside the top 50. Glass half fold, despite all the struggles last year, she did manage to sustain a spot inside the top 100. And so you're right. Like, if your floor as a 20-year-old is your top 100 player, that's a good place to start foundationally. Here's the thing. From a matchup perspective, the heavy topspin of the Iga forehand into that Radakanu forehand, I think that's going to be a problem for Radakanu. You talk about Iga being mentally uh, spent. How about Radakanu, who, you know, pre-tournament was, oh, she's having some wrist issues flare up. She's having a couple of things going wrong. We don't know how good she's going to be physically entering this event. How much gas will she have left in the tank after that three-set battle against uh, against Beatrice Hadan Maya yesterday? I think, I think Sviantek wins. You know, again, backhand to backhand, it's going to be a fun battle. I think that's going to be some really fun cross-court exchanges. I just, I don't know what Radakanu is going to do to consistently hurt Iga. I just don't know if she's going to have the opportunity to hit through her forehand as much as she has in some of these earlier matches, just given, again, the topspin that'll be coming her way. But yeah, I mean, on paper, a lot of really good round of 16 matches. I think that's right near the top of the list. I mean, obviously, the best round of 16 match is the matchup between the two and three contenders on our list. And look, there's not much you can say about Arena Sabalenka. She played one match so far at this event. Like, she has to be number two on the list by default. Krejcikova's three. 
She got pushed by Wang Xinyu. Three-set victory there. That said, I think that told me more about Wang Xinyu than it did anything going astray for Krejcikova. How big is the delta? You know, again, are they still two and three on your list? And how big is the delta between them after them and, and everyone else in your opinion? Uh, pretty massive, to yeah. be honest. I mean, I, I'm maybe one emphatic Rybakina performance away from maybe saying that she's in that trio as well. But right now, I think it, you have to look at both Sabalink and Krejcikova. I mean, because to play the winner of Golf peterson and then one of Sakari, Pliskova, Kvitova, Pagula to make the final... I would have to give the edge to either of those over the field at this point. So that's certainly, it feels like at the de facto semifinal in many respects. Uh, do we want to talk about why Sabalenka only had to play one match to make the fourth round? Well, I would love to hear your thoughts on all things related to, yes, Steve Simon, obviously, in case you didn't hear his conversation uh, prior to the third round with Lucia Serenko about the inclusion of Russian players, Belarusian players moving forward. I would love your take, of course, on it. I mean, when I heard that Serenko pulled out and the fact that she was going to play Sabalenka, I did wonder, I mean, because Serenko is so injury prone, it, there was a pretty good argument in either direction. Was she withdrawing in protest? Was she withdrawing because she was just legitimately injured? I mean, she's someone who's been very snake bitten over her career. And then obviously the, the story came out from the Ukrainian tennis account about how she'd had this conversation with WTA CEO and chairman Steve Simon about some of her concerns first uh, regarding uh, ball uh, quality in Monterey and whether there would be uh, a continued ban on Russian and Belarusian players from Wimbledon or what the, what their status was and whether there would be more support to Ukrainian players because there had been some support after the Australian Open. And uh, she got some, you know, un, to her mind, unsatisfactory answers. Were they answers that necessarily surprised me? No, because I think we were starting to see sort of, a, I guess, at the worst possible time, given the state of the continued war uh, from Russia on Ukraine, that there is a thaw, uh, at least uh, athletically, that we're probably going to see Russian and Belarusians in the Olympics. We're probably going to start seeing them unbanned from places where they've been previously banned. There seems to be uh, rumblings that they will, in fact, be allowed to play at Wimbledon because there's been... Uh, allegedly some threats that the tours might, you know, sell the sanctions of the British tournaments, which would certainly be a big hit to the LTA if they just sort of, you know, uh, move away from mm -hmm. the pre-Wimbledon swing entirely. It's, um, I guess, not a bargaining chip that the tours were able to make last year. But it's um, it's a brutal time for it to be happening, especially in light of the fact that uh, Anastasia Potapova, God bless her, showed up to her match against Jessica Pagula wearing a Spartak football jersey, which while you can certainly say she's been a lifelong fan of the Spartak Football Club, it's a sporting organization. The fact that she's showing up in a shirt with Russian lettering on it certainly feels like, I mean, she. I spoke to her at the US Open. She said she was against the war. She felt anyone, you know, effectively, she said, you'd have to be an idiot to think that these players who are silent are not against the war and that, you know, this is just something she can't control. And she obviously had um, been wrapped up in this uh match with Kalinskaya, where there had been a Ukrainian fan who was asked to leave. She denied that she was the player who asked the player to leave or asked the umpire to ask the player to leave. So that was all sort of brutal optics to, for that to happen within the same 24-hour span as Serenko's conversation with Steve Simon. You know, it's interesting that she went right to the top. I mean, I think we don't typically see players go or certainly publicly go to um, the top executives, but his answers didn't necessarily shock me. Or did, I mean, they were perhaps not um, 
as sympathetic as they could be. I mean, to say if he is alleged, if he is, if he is proven to have said, or if he did in fact say that, um, you know, don't worry about Russians being in favor of the war. It's just their opinion. I mean, that doesn't seem to be a totally, you know, it's not, it's not about favorite colors. It's not about favorite foods. This is, you know, whether, you know, it's about human rights. And so you obviously don't want to, to feel even have the the vague sense that there are are, uh, colleagues among you who feel that way. So that's, that's a brutal thing to be told. And I certainly, but I was also not surprised that they're, the WKs continue to monitor things. You know, that's a very um, unsurprising answer, but again, what, what more, you know, they're in this position where they're making a lot of making a lot of changes and the CBC um, merger just being announced there. The WTA is always in flux. We still don't know where the WTA finals is going to be, which uh, Victoria Azarenka spoke to earlier in the year that she didn't even know. And that's bad you know, for the state of the women's game that, that we don't know where our w, where the WTA finals is going to be. So all that said, it's it's a tough, um, tough moment, you know, and, and I, I don't know what more can be done. And it's just it's 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 really difficult for all for certainly most difficult for the Ukrainians. I don't want to very, say for difficult for everybody. I don't want to both both sides that one. No, very, very well said. I, I don't have much to add to that. I did promise I would keep you here for less than an hour. I violated that promise, though. So I apologize. Oh, that's you're too kind to me, DK. No, again, I yes, perfectly said yes. And it's something to monitor because it's not just Russia, right? It's China, too. It's like, is the WTA going to reengage with China moving forward? We still haven't heard from Peng Shui. And it, it's just it's fascinating. It really is because they're obviously, again, all of this money, all of these resources were put in uh, by China into the WTA. And you do see a new wave of Chinese players, right? Jiang Chinwen and Wang Shiyu, Wang Xinyu. Uh, obviously, Lin Zhu's had a really good year this year as well. It, it, it's multiple fronts now for the WTA. They got to make some choices. Well, that's the tricky thing, isn't it? Is that if you are not going to ban Chinese players – as a result of the Peng Shui debacle, I don't see how you can necessarily ban Russian and Belarusian players for uh, the something that's fu- something no, that direct, yeah, but something that did not directly affect tennis. I mean, literally, sure. a player was, if you believe everything, was was disappeared by the Chinese government. I mean, that would that not be a reason to? I mean, then you're starting to wonder how. What is there? Are all sorts of threads you can logical conclusions you could take as a result of an action like that, and yet they're you know, Russian, uh, rather Chinese players, Chinese coaches are still being allowed to, you know, propagate on the tour, which, you know, if, if both, if one if one happens, then you would think the other would happen as well. So that's, and and it also comes down to the fact that would things be different if Alina Svitolina was world number one? Sure. Maybe, you know, she would certainly have a larger. Um, There's a name I hadn't thought about know, in a hot second. She's coming back. Yeah, uh, not something I expected to just had her baby. And is, is, I think we'll be in, I mean, she's going to wow. be. Right there, uh, right, right in the thick of it, allegedly. So that's—I um, don't know if that was confirmed or not. It was a, that was a text message I got. Um, but, uh, may or may not be. In- but um, there's a little yeah, scoop stuff. there. Yeah, if you're listening <laughs> to minute number sixty-three of the show, you deserve a scoop. Like oh that. gosh, um, um, yeah. It, it, I was like, is that public knowledge? <laughs> yeah. Do you do you need me to do you need me to quack it out? I can yeah, quack, quack it out, out if need be. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna quack it out then. I but don't, I don't know. Someone yeah. might be playing, or Elita Svitolina might be playing somewhere soon. Soon. We'll quack out the. Yeah. Game. I don't think. I don't think that's the fact that she's planning to come back. That is not news. And in fact, I think I did read that Raymond Sluter is going to be work. That I saw on Twitter. So that's <laughs> if that's wrong, Twitter's wrong. But I'm just saying yeah. that. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, like so that if, if there was an equivalent Ukrainian world number, you know, top flight Ukrainian athlete, really, you know, ringing the bell, perhaps things would be different, which is you know unfair. But that's also sort of the way that. Fortunately, the way the world works. Yeah. Uh, 
no, I, really well said. Uh, and again, it's going to be fascinating to monitor. All right. I think we agree. Sviantek 1, Sabalenka 2, Krejcikova 3. This is where it gets interesting. And yes, there's a drop. But who would be your 4, just hypothetically? Abri Bikina. I think okay. that that's um, based on the way that she was able to really solve Bedosa, who'd beaten her the last couple of times that they played. Bedosa's a former champion here. Gets uh, Vavara Gracheva in the fourth round. We'll have to play one of Sakari or Pushkova. You know, this feels like Rybakina's moment to um, to reassert herself after her Australian Open uh, heroics. This is a slower hardcore, but the way that Rybakina hits the ball, you would think that a little bit of extra timing may actually help her. She is a former French Open quarterfinalist, so I don't know if the slower hardcore will be necessarily to her detriment. And so that's uh, if she's continuing to play this well, she would be very much in contention and could be that number three uh, pick to win if and when one of Sabalenka or Krejcikov exits the tournament. Yeah. Um, very well said. I think she was, I mean, she was number five on my list, uh, her serve, the power tennis she's capable of playing, obviously got tested by Bedosa, got tested in her first round matchup as well against Kennan. She gets through both in straight sets. She's one of the rare players with weapons that can actually hit through this court. She, you know, she has a little bit more time to get to the ball now as well, making her that much more dangerous. I think that's a correct four. It's not who my number four is. My four and five are both different styles of players. I went Goff and Von Drusova, uh simply because the physicality they bring. I mean, Goff has looked – she's been broken once through two matches. Like every forehand is shoulder level, so she gets to hit down on them, which is what she wants to be doing. And again, good luck getting a, buy on, a ball by her on this surface. Now the issue becomes, again, everything she does, Iga does just a little bit better. And so that's why she unfortunately can't be number one on this list. For Vondrosova, she's just back. Like, I don't know how else to say it. She's back to her top 25 form. I think she moves the ball so well around the court on this surface in particular. She has the effective drop shots, the effective angles to open up lanes of attack for herself. I just think it's a really good surface for Vondrosova. Those are my four and five by vibes. I mean, Rabakina should be four. But what, where are you with those two players who, again, I just think the physicality they bring to Indian Wells is why they have to bring be on this list. Coco is a tricky choice because I think she has a better chance than Pagula based on the way Pagula has or has not played in the last couple of matches. I certainly think Potapova should have beaten her being up 3-1 in the third, but it was one of those moments when I was watching her up 3-1 in the third and thinking Potapova's going to have to hold serve three more times to win this match. I don't know how I feel about that one. So the fact that, um, that it ended up going Pagula's way didn't entirely surprise me. The problem with Coco is that there are a lot of elements to deal with sure. with Indian Wells and hers is a game that does not do well with the elements. I mean, when I fully expected her to be Palapadosa here in 2021 and she got a windy night match and Coco could not handle those conditions at all. And, and whether that, ha- you know, the odds of that happening at least once over the next four, three or four matches feels greater than the ability that it doesn't. And then that, you know, could be pot- potentially a big wrench in the Coco, uh, the Coco train. But with Von Drusova, uh, I mean, she certainly has everything. I mean, for me, I almost think that Mukova has a better chance of uh, doing better than Von Drusova just because Mukova has the all-court game and has just that bit, little bit of extra firepower. I mean, listen, I'm someone who thought that Von Drusova could win a Grand Slam when she was in the final against Barty. And then I saw her step to the baseline to return Barty's serve. And I thought, oh no, this is, I have, I have grossly miscalculated this one. So if in fact that Von Drusova is it back to her Grand Slam final reaching best, that is still not enough to me that to win a, a Masters 1000. But um, 
think she actually beat Sabalenka here at this tournament a couple of years ago with that said. So she is someone who can figure out a big hitter, but I don't know if she could beat Bondrusova and one of um, Rybakina, Gracheva, and likely Iga, if not Emma or uh, Garcia. Or yeah, Garcia. It's, <laughs> no, it, it's a tough draw. And again, I mean, for Vondrusova, she takes out the big seed, right? So she gets through... Um, she gets through Jabur in her section. It was obviously the Jabur quarter, so things do begin to open up. But you're right. Like, Mukova's a really tough test. And yes, Mukova got pushed to three yesterday, but ultimately is able to get through Trevisan. I mean, talk about a fun match between two players who might be the most underranked players right now on the WTA Tour. Mukova at 61. She has no business being that low. Von Drusova at 103. She has no business being that low. The it's battle of the PRs. Yeah, if Von Drusova wins this match, she's up to number 90 in the world. That's still far too low. If Mukova wins this match, she's all the way back up to number 55. Still far too low. It's again, both could be seated. Like, if you told me these are two of the 32 best players in the world right now, I'd believe that. Like, no doubt about it. And so, that's an interesting matchup. You're right. Potentially Rabakana after that. Again, I think there's a big delta. I do still think, as of right now, there's only three players where if they lifted the trophy, it wouldn't surprise me. And that's Iga, that's Sabalenka, that's Krechikova. I'd what even do you say Rabakana, I'm not half surprised. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, not to totally derail this, but I was going to just no, say, please. speaking of the Jabor quarter, what do you make of both Jabor and Stefano Tsitsipas coming to this tournament openly undercooked? I mean, I think Tsitsipas worse than Jabor, but Jabor was pretty open about the fact that she probably should have taken more time off and wanted to come back and just see things, how things, to see how things were going mentally, you know, kind of barely gets past Magda Freck and then, you know, doesn't get the revenge match that I don't think she was even thinking she was capable of against Von Drosova. I mean, we we talk about the BNP Paribas Open as a fifth slam. The BNP Paribas Open doesn't like to be referred to as the fifth slam, and yet we certainly put that gravitas on it. Is it because of that? Why do we feel that these tournaments, when, you know, they're not slams, but yet they're 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 flying. They're all. They're not even states. They're not even stateside players. They're flying to this this tournament that they're kind of openly saying they don't feel ready to play, and then they're not. They're not doing well either. So it's sort of a strange, new or maybe not new, but it's a it's a strange thing to, for for it to be happening with multiple players at the same tournament. Yeah, I think that's just part of the calendar, part of the schedule. We talked about this in December and January. There is no off season, right? All these players are playing through things, whether it be exhibitions or again going from the court right into training and. Yeah, there's a lot of players who have nicks and bruises that just add up because there is no clean three-month, four-month break to reset the body. Jabur hasn't been healthy for like five, six months consecutively now. You feel like she really could afford to take three months just completely away from the game. And yet again, from a ranking perspective, it's really hard to do that, especially when you're Jabur and you know, I mean, no Wimbledon final points to defend right now, but... U.S. Open final points defense. And a lot on clay. Madrid and Rome, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like, I kind of got to play if I want to keep my ranking this high. Tsitsipas, you know, he said I promised myself or whatever, like, that I would play these. I mean, Tsitsipas is just Tsitsipas. Like, he's going to play through things. That's, for for better or for worse, that's his mentality. And I'm never going to knock a player for playing. Like, all we ever ask these top players to do is play the big events. So I get it. Like, again, if that's what you're most comfortable doing, go for it. Ultimately, they're the ones who have to lose the matches. And so like, if they're fine, if they go in with the expectation that, yeah, like it's not going to be my best. I know I might struggle then more power to them for playing the matches. It was an aggressive disclaimer from Sitsvas, especially with it was seemingly, aggressive. 
with no context. Like he yeah, it was sure. like as if he knew that they it was if he thought that they knew he was injured. He was like, yeah. I'm not I'm not physically fit. And then like he, like the third question was like, and what exactly is wrong with you? Like it yeah. was just sort of like a weird like catch game of catch up that had to be played. But it also makes me wonder, because we were asking this a couple months ago, how would these offseason exos sort of effectively an offseason tour that was starting to take shape in the Middle East? You know, with with Casper, who is really feeling the, the effects of having done that Middle East swing and also the Rafael Nadal um, exhibition tour, will players make that same decision in December? I mean, there's certainly a lot of money to be made. And will they prioritize that over perhaps long term success? But based on what we have seen, the the only players that it has arguably benefited was Sabalenka and Rybakina. And even that, you know, we've seen Sabalenka lose in the, in the Middle East and Rybakina hasn't been amazing since the Australian Open. But it's uh, overall, I don't I don't think that those offseason exos have been that beneficial to the players. I think they would have been better off just taking a real vacation, having a real preseason training block and showing up in January fit. I don't I don't know if I would make that that decision again. Yeah. I was one of them. Who are you more concerned for right now? Two-time 2022 slam finalist Casper Root or two-time 2022 slam finalist Owen Jabur? Ajibor, because I do think that for Casper, he doesn't seem to be unfit, which Shabor is openly unfit right now in terms of her, you know, match toughness and physicality and just underwent a procedure, which Casper did not. And Casper is about to hit the clay court season where you would think this would be a big opportunity for him to sort of round his way back into form, whereas Jabor you know, is is certainly good on clay and has been very good on clay, but you you don't necessarily think of her as being a lock on clay the way that we've started to think of Casper as a lock on clay. And so and so much of Owens' game is based on vibes and confidence. And she's coming into clay feeling a lot of pressure to defend her points. And, you know, someone who doesn't rely on traditional patterns, she could be that walking, you know, upset opportunity for a lot of players. I mean, Von Drusova's ranking is not going to get that much higher as a result of this tournament. She can get her again. <laughs> and Von Drusova is very good on clay too. So, I mean, that's, um, that was that, that was what I was asking about Jabor at the end of last year. I mean, is she going to be, you know, another Vera Zvonareva, a player who, you know, maxed out, made two, two slam finals in a row, and then really struggled to back that up and, and, Similar, similar physical issues. I mean, Svonner always, always has something wrapped, even now at, at her at her age of 55 or whatever, however old she is now. But um, yeah, I, I do question where we go from here with Shabor. I mean, she would need to get really fit, really confident and ready to go for clay because that would really, that would take a big hack at her ranking because other than that, it's um, it's the US Open and it's the year in championships for her. So she's about to really defend a lot of points. And I think that's why she felt the pressure to come back in Indian Wells in Miami. So you're right from that perspective, but you're so wrong from the philosophy that you're approaching to that question. This will be where we end the show, I promise. Because I'm wrong. Well, Casper Rude is fit. Like, isn't that the concern is he's fit and he's still losing. Like, if I'm on Jabur, I'm like, yeah, but I'm not playing my best right now. I'm clearly not fit. You, If you watch the first set of her match against Magdalena Freak, it was awful. Like, she was spraying everywhere. It was so clear the rhythm wasn't there. Now, she found her rhythm and managed to survive as that match progressed. And to your point, again, she has a lot of points to defend. So she needs to find her top form and become fit with some urgency. Like, you're absolutely right. That's why there's pressure on her. But, like... Casper's fit and he's still losing. Like, like in terms of an actual tennis assessment, I would be more concerned with the assessment of Rude because it's like, hey, man, the book's kind of out on you right now. Like, people are know how to attack you. People know 
Anytime you get him stretched wide on that backhand wing, you got to push forward to him and you got to press forward because you can't just give him another on the run forehand. He's too good on that ball. He's going to get things back to neutral. Then he's dictating with his forehand again. You know, I thought we saw Christian Green be really aggressive on second serve returns to, again, just keep the pace and on and pressure on route and take time away from him. Obviously, we saw him lose to Taro Daniel as well in Mexico. Like, the tennis isn't working for Casper Ruud. That would be my biggest concern, and that's why I might lean more concerned about him than the other way. Because, like, Jabir's just not fit. Casper's just losing matches. Yeah, but he might also just not be physically, mentally into this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think that's the argument. Of, yeah, yeah he's, that's He's fair. a bit, like, on fumes still because he still really hasn't had a real yeah. vacation. And he and he does a lot of stuff. I mean, he's got that podcast with Barbara Shett. I mean, he's, like, he, he's pretty active – not as active as Holger Runa, but he's very into social. He he does also sure. reply to players, or rather to fans as a player. Um, so, I mean, because you, you wonder, you just think that things will click. And you have to think that he's practicing okay, because he's certainly practicing probably as much as he ever has been. And you always think that if you're practicing well, eventually it translates to, to the match. And again, like the fact that he's he could just be biding his time for clay and maybe he might not be one of those players who overperforms on hard courts every year. I mean, he's just someone who is always going to be foundationally more um, of a match to clay. And the fact that he played as well as he did on hard courts last year was a function of confidence and fitness. And he may not be as match fit and confident as he was this time last year. Yeah. Very well said. Well, then he better. I mean, if I was him, I would just skip Wimbledon. I mean, after the French open, he should just take a month off because I saw him play those matches at Wimbledon, and there is no reason for him to play that tournament unless he makes some real structural changes to that forehand. But that's that's perhaps a conversation saved for June. Yeah, well, then that's where we'll leave things, and we'll pick them back up. After he wins Rolling Garros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With all of that said, David Kane, I know you and the Tennis.com team have been busy. What can we expect on the final stretch here at Indian Wells? Oh, just more of the same. <laughs> yeah, sure. A lot of coverage from .com, a lot of coverage from Baseline. We obviously we wrote up the the Vavrinka Runa uh, feud. If you missed it last night, we got we we have all the all the details for you, and perhaps even more uh, later on. But we're just really we're treading water. We're just trying to keep up with as much as what's happening, and uh, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, no, I love to hear it. Well, of course, tennis.com to read all of the latest and greatest work by David Kane. You can also follow him at DKTNS on Twitter. DK, we always appreciate you taking the time to chat. Of course, we also always appreciate the work of super producer Danny Westoff, who has what sort of editing job to do, DK? He does a f***ing editing job. There it among is. Among other things. Yeah, exactly. I knew you'd be ready to pick things up there. So shout out to you, as always. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, that's where things stand at the halfway mark at Indian Wells for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? Is that all you have to say to me? That's the break. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks as always, DK. I'll see you.